This week on WealthTrack, why we could be in the midst of a major long-term change in market leadership. I think the difference in performance over the next couple of years could be startling to a lot of investors. You know, we're already starting to see where cyclical industries are up on an absolute basis and secular growth industries are down on an absolute basis. All-star strategist Richard Bernstein states the case this week on Consuelo Mac WealthTrack. Funding provided by Morgan Le Fay Dreams Foundation, ClearBridge Investments, Royce Investment Partners, Matthews Asia, First Eagle Investment Management, and Strategus Asset Management. Hello and welcome to this edition of WealthTrack. I'm Consuelo Mack. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that 2021 is a year of significant political and macroeconomic change. A new party in charge of the executive and legislative branches. A new agenda of government activism, including record amounts of government spending. More regulation and the potential for higher taxes for corporations and upper income individuals plus a continuation of the Federal Reserve's record-breaking monetary stimulus. Meanwhile, the rollout of COVID vaccines is starting to unleash a year's worth of pent-up consumer and business demand. Well, what do these changes portend for stock prices and other assets, which have already seen remarkable gains since the lows of 2020? This week's guest is a noted investment strategist known for his macro analysis and thematic investing. He is Richard Bernstein, Chief Executive and Chief Investment Officer of Richard Bernstein Advisors, which he founded in 2009 and which now oversees or advises over $12 billion in assets, largely in multi-asset allocation strategies for financial advisors using ETFs, and also including two mutual funds under the Eaton Vance name. RBA is ranked one of the 10 largest ETF managed portfolio strategists by Morningstar. Now, Bernstein says we are in the early stages of a massive change in market leadership. I asked him to explain. I I really do think we're in the early stages of uh, a major change in leadership. And and there's a lot of things that point to this. You know, number one is we're really looking at a boom in earnings 2021 into 2022. I think everybody knows that earnings have been depressed because of the pandemic and people are kind of poo-pooing it because of that. But I always remind people every cycle starts with uh, some form of depressed earnings, whether you know it's just the pandemic or whether it's just the global financial crisis or whether it's just a recession. There's always something that causes uh, earnings to be depressed. So, so we're going to have a boom coming off that depressed base. That's number one. Number two is we're likely to be looking at more inflation than people think, not less inflation than people think. And, and number three, I mean, just from a sentiment point of view, nobody believes that we could be in a long-term uptrend in value. You know, most people believe it's temporary. How long could it possibly last? Right. And so if you look at the sentiment, you look at, at earnings, there's a lot of things that are saying here this could last longer than people think. So let's take each of those points uh, one at a time because I know they're major themes of yours. So a, a profits boom, what is it that's driving this profits boom and where in particular is it going to happen among what kinds of industries and businesses? Right. So let's take the second part of your question first. I okay. always remind people, to state the obvious, I always remind people that the cycle by definition is determined by cyclicals. So where is the improvement going to be? It's going to be in cyclical industries. You know, stable and secular growers aren't cyclical enough to either cause the downturn or to cause an upturn. So if you think profits are going to rebound, 
you always should think cyclicals over stable and secular growers. So that's, that's number one. Number two, what's gonna cause this? A number of different things. Number one, uh, because of the pandemic, we've had constraints in supply to varying degrees in different industries and things like that. But if you just take something like the energy industry, which is compounded by a loss of demand because of the pandemic, nobody's flying, nobody's driving, you know, nobody's taking cruise ships, you know, just a number of different things have caused the fall off in demand. Plus, going into the pandemic, they were cutting back on supply. The oil rig count and the gas rig count is basically the lowest ever in history. So we've got this confluence of events in cyclical industries where demand is going up, supply is being constrained. When demand outstrips supply, you don't need a PhD in economics to understand that's probably going to be pretty good for those industries. Right. And and when we talk about cyclical, you know, I, I think of cyclical as being short-lived. The performance that you could participate in in cyclicals used to happen very, very quickly. Yes. It, what is the case now with this cyclical recovery? So I think, uh, first of all, in, in most cyclical recoveries that we've seen, the profit cycle has rebounded for anywhere from four to 12 quarters. So okay. I would start by saying we probably have a year to go. This is a 2021, probably into 2022 type story, but no secular story is known to be a secular story before it starts, right? And so I think we should just be happy that it could be a cyclical story first. And if it turns out to be a secular story, all the better, right? And But I think the difference in performance over the next couple of years could be startling to a lot of investors. You know, we're already starting to see where cyclical industries are up on an absolute basis and secular growth industries are down on an absolute basis. You just mentioned energy as a, as a cyclical industry. What are some of the other cyclical industries that are starting to recover and that are have performed well? Right. Well, so first of all, there's energy, which is right. sort of my personal favorite. You have materials companies, which are often called commodity type companies. You know, whether you're thinking about things like copper or you're thinking about industrial gases or anything like that, you've got that. You've got paper and forest products in the materials sector. You've got regional banks, which are extraordinarily cyclical because of lending curves and lending patterns. And, and so they tend to be very cyclical. Most small cap companies tend to be very cyclical because they're, they're marginal players. And so as marginal players, you tend to feel the, the, um, the cycle a lot more than, say, big, big companies would that have stronger balance sheets. And then if you want to go outside the United States, you should even be thinking more about emerging markets. Emerging markets are that economically sensitive that if you have a cyclical rebound, they are going to participate as well. And, and why is that, Rich? It comes well, there's, there's sort of two different groups of emerging markets, and it's almost the same as what we have here in the United States, where we've got this bifurcated market between tech and secular growers and all the sexy stuff, and then everything else. In emerging markets, the sexy market is China. China actually acted as a safe haven in a year ago in the first quarter of 2020, when there was immense volatility in the global equity markets. China was, was either the first or the second best performing equity market. It was a safe haven. Well, what's happened is that safe haven has started to underperform as the global cyclical upturn has started to unfold. And so the same thing, the same reason you might say, well, food stocks are starting to underperform in the United States. Healthcare stocks are starting to underperform in the United States. You should think about the same way about China being that safe haven, that more stable company. So outside, outside of China, 
you have tremendous sensitivity in many markets to commodity prices, to just overall global growth. And I think you're starting to see that. You're not seeing that through the whole asset class yet, but you're starting to see it in select markets where their sensitivity is starting to show up. I would never have thought of China as being a safe haven. Yeah, really. Um, it was certainly early uh, in its recovery. It was early having a pandemic, and it was uh, early getting out of the pandemic. How do you view China now? Consuel, we have to remove the politics from all this. We know right. China... We know China's a bad guy. We know they're a bad player. Nobody's going to argue otherwise, right? We know that. Let's just push that aside for a second. But what you saw over the past several years was their earnings and profits and industrial growth was very stable and very, very fast relative to the rest of the world. Not unlike the way we would think of a, of a tech company, you know, one of the Fab Five here in the United States. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what they were doing. So the same way the Fab Five has started to underperform, China started to underperform too. It's, it's almost the same thing. Let's talk about the Fab Five. And in this case, it's the FANG stocks, for instance. Right. But in a previous discussion that you and I had, you said there's always a Fab Five in these cycles. Right. So, so what happens, Consuelo, every time the profit cycle peaks and begins to roll over, you'll find that the stock market becomes increasingly Darwinistic. It becomes survival of the fittest. And what investors do is they shun the companies that can't grow anymore, and they rush towards the fewer and fewer and fewer companies that can maintain their growth rates, right? And so that's what we've seen in the United States. We've seen the, the profit cycle peaked in 2018. And so the profits, as the profit cycle began to slowly decelerate, we saw this Darwinistic approach slowly start to happen. And then we hit the pandemic, right? And profits got absolutely crushed. And what happened? We hit the Fab Five, right? Now, the unfortunate side to that is that I think many of Wall Street's best marketers began to talk about a new age of innovation and disruption and, and all this type of stuff. It was also sexy and wonderful. But in fact, all we saw was a normal cyclical downturn in the profit cycle where leadership would normally uh, uh, narrow, but then it was on steroids because of the pandemic. And so we ended up with this extraordinarily narrow leadership. But what you're beginning to see is exactly what history says should happen is as the profit cycle is troughing, you're seeing a broadening of the market, you're seeing value outperform growth, all those type of things. But that's why you ended up with the Fab Five was that you had this normal cyclical deceleration put on steroids by the pandemic. It's interesting that you say that, that this is normal, that this has <laughs> happened is. before, because as we know, every headline was a new digital era and that the companies that are participating in this and that the pandemic just accentuated how right. special they were and how leading edge they were, you know, Amazon and, uh, you know, Apple and everything going online. But you're saying from uh, experience uh, that there are always these types of companies, that this is not something different? Correct. There's, there's two things I, I, I want your viewers to understand. Right. One is that there's the stocks and two is there's the stories. And the stories don't always match up to the stocks or the stocks don't match up to the stories. I think that's very important for people to remember. So, yes, you always have stocks that can maintain growth during a cyclical downturn. That always happens, right? Traditionally, it would be things like food stocks and beverage stocks and household right. products and, and pharmaceutical companies. Because, you know, no matter what goes on, we all still eat. We still drink, right? So 
This time, what happened was you had the added group of the technology stocks. Now, some of this was because we were all working from home. Some of it was the change in lifestyle because of the pandemic. And some of it was, honestly, technological innovation. There's no reason to think that it, it wasn't. But does that necessarily mean that there's a new age of innovation and disruption mm-hmm. that's going to last? In a, the way that I would think about this and the way I would encourage your viewers to think about this is to remember that during the tech bubble, there were a lot of promises made about how technology was going to change your life. And it did. It absolutely did. It but did. in the next decade, from 2000 to 2010, tech was the worst performing sector in the S&P 500. In fact, you got negative absolute returns despite that the stories came true. So you have to separate out the stocks and the valuation of the stocks from the stories themselves. So do you think that that could happen again, that we could be facing another like lost decade for you know companies like the FANGs? And, and the reason, obviously, that this is so important because so many investors are heavily invested mm-hmm. in these, you know, Fab Five, um, and their portfolios will really suffer if, in fact, they turn out to be, you know, not just lagging performers, but uh, I mean, but you know, terrible performers. Mm-hmm. So what are you telling us to do with our holdings of these, you know, former leaders, right. these tech leaders? Right. So, so the Fab Five companies are not really where the ton of risk is, right? Mm-hmm. They're obviously they could underperform. But they're healthy companies. They have strong balance sheets. They're cash right. flow positive. They, you know, we don't want to get too carried away about that group. Okay. They may underperform, but that's not, you know, that's not the huge risk that's out right. there. The real risk is in the companies that are not cash flow positive that need the hype of the technology sector to keep raising more and more capital. These are companies that never would have come public in the old days. They would have been kept private. They would have been uh, still getting private financing and things like that. But now they're public companies. And so if they start underperforming and if they don't have access to the capital markets, that's where you get into trouble. That's where these companies fall apart. Many of them are cash flow negative and they need the hype to keep raising more and more capital until they finally become profitable. And, and Richard, let me ask you as well about, you know, an, another one of the points you made in one of your major th- themes is, is that inflation could be higher than mm. people currently think. So talk to us about that. You and I are of the age where when, when we say inflation, we automatically think the 1970s. Yes. Right. It's just like it starts dancing in our head. And 14%. That's not, yeah. Uh, I mean, amazing. But that's not what we're talking about here. Right. And, and I think your, your viewers want to, don't want to dismiss this as saying, oh, we're not going back to the 1970s, there's no chance. That's not the right way to think about this. The way to think about it as an investor is sort of as an over-under. What's the probability that inflation could be higher than people think? You know, for many, many years, inflation played limbo with investors. No matter how much we lowered our expectations, inflation scooted under that bar. Now, we may be playing hurdles. Mm-hmm. And so we may have a certain expectation. The question is, is inflation going to jump that hurdle and surprise us on the upside? So the consensus expectation right now is only about 2.1, 2.2%. For and this inflation. is the CPI, for instance? I'm, I'm sorry. The, yes, the CPI. The, uh-huh. the, you know, the Consumer forecast, price index. Right. Yeah, most, most forecasts are 2.1, 2.2, 2.3%, somewhere in that range. What if it turns out to be 2.7 or 3 
which would not be an immense amount of inflation by historical standards, but would be a pretty significant surprise right. to the markets. I think that's what people have to think about. And the reason I think there's tremendous opportunities in pro-inflation assets is that you will find in most portfolios, pro-inflation assets are either significantly underweight or completely ignored. That to us says that there's tremendous opportunities in pro-inflation assets. And examples of pro-inflation assets are? Things like commodities, things like commodity-oriented countries, commodity-oriented sectors. I mentioned energy and materials and things right. like that. Consuelo, here's, here's kind of a cute way to think about this. There are a million different exchange-traded funds, ETFs. There's a million different ETFs for the tech sector and every little aspect of the tech sector. There are no ETF, zero, Zippo. There is not one ETF for the chemicals industry or the paper and forest products industry. They just don't exist. Because and there they was are no demand, that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Nobody cares. Right. Nobody cares. So, so that says that there could be some opportunities. You run portfolios of ETFs. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you do about covering those sectors, yeah, what those do we industries? Do? That's, a, that's an interesting question, right? So we can't go in and get the individual sectors. So what we have to do is try to put together packages of ETFs to get the exposures that we want. You know, yeah. it's a lot of people think of ETFs as very discrete um, structures, that, and they think of pigeonholes. I want equities, I want fixed income, and they just kind of put in into the pigeonhole what they want. For us. Our portfolios are more like jigsaw puzzle pieces. We have mm -hmm. to find port we have to find ETFs that fit in with everything else we're holding to get us the exposures that we want. What gets hurt if inflation does pick up? I think most people understand that if inflation surprises on the upside, the odds are that long-term interest rates go up as well, right? That's just a natural phenomenon. I right. think most people Which means are, that bond understand. prices go down. Correct. Bond right. prices go down, long-term interest rates go up. Right. And we know that we don't want long maturity, long duration bonds, because when long-term interest rates go up, they get hurt the most. Right. So I think most people know that. What's interesting is that people can't make the transition from the bond market to the equity market. And in the equity market, there are long duration, long maturity, if you prefer to call it, long duration equities just as there are long-duration bonds. And what you find is when long-term interest rates go up, long-duration bonds underperform and long-duration equities underperform. And that is a new concept for most of us. So yes. tell us what long-duration equities are. Here's an easy way to think about what a long-duration equity would be. Think of a price-earnings ratio, you know, the, the common P-E ratio. And let's not make this very difficult. Let's just say the P-E ratio is 30. Now, assuming no growth for the company, I realize that's not the way to think about this, but just think about no growth for the company. A P.E. ratio of 30 says that today's price equates 30 years of earnings if there were no growth in the company, right? So right. a P.E. of five would argue that we're discounting five years of earnings. So when interest rates go up, just as a 30-year bond underperforms the five-year bond, the 30-year P.E. underperforms the 5PE. It's the exact same concept, the exact same function, but for some reason people don't understand that. So if you're looking at a lot of the, you know, innovation and disruption and tech right, and all the these things Right, the high PE growth on, stocks, right. There you go. They're very high PE, and so if interest rates go up, that's going to be very difficult for those long-duration equities to outperform. 
let me um, also talk about some other asset classes that might be considered long duration. Private equity, the mm -hmm. um, IPO market, uh, venture capital, the SPACs, the special purpose acquisition companies. Are, are those also long duration? Private equity is a little more difficult because private mm -hmm. equity, you can have different types, just as you can have different types of equities, you know, different types of private equity. But certainly venture capital would be a, a classic case of a long duration investment. And you run multi-asset allocation strategies, so they also include fixed income. If, if in fact, right. inflation is going to pick up, you know, what do we do about income and right. specifically bond holdings? There's a couple of things that, that um, we're doing and a couple of things I would suggest that, that people do. Um, number one, we are keeping our bond maturities pretty short. And mm -hmm. where our maturities are longer, we are hedging the interest rate risk. In other words, we don't want to have that risk of interest rates going up in the portfolio. We might want the higher yield, but we don't want the risk of interest rates going up and ruining the total return of, of our bond. So, so how do you hedge that risk? There's, there's actually ETFs that are out there that allow mm -hmm. you, that, that actually do hedge the interest rate risk. And then we are also looking at lower quality bonds because when interest rates go up, it usually means the nominal economy, meaning real growth plus inflation, the nominal economy is strengthening. And if the nominal economy is strengthening, more marginal companies can survive. They do better than people think, right? And their bonds very often are completely mispriced. They're mispriced, they're priced for bankruptcy. The bankruptcy doesn't occur. So there's opportunities in high yield bonds. The other thing we're doing just in that kind of high yield bond thing is that we have exposure to emerging market high yield. Everybody's reaction when I say that is, you know, they, they grab their chest and they go, oh my, how risky must that be? Right. The reality is, is that the default rate, in other words, the bonds that don't deliver, the default rate in emerging market high yield is lower than the default rate in U.S. high yield. That's so surprising to me. It is. It is. Absolutely. Why is that? Is it? It's, it's a number of different things, but I would say, first and foremost, one has to remember that in countries... Bond ratings are determined by the sovereign credit risk, in other words, the, the local government credit risk. And in certain countries, what you will find is that the corporate market is of better quality, although not rated as such, but is better quality in cash flow than is the government itself. Which leads me actually to, to your, your next theme, which is don't be geographically myopic. Right. Why should we be looking overseas uh, well, instead of being, you know, only investing at home? It's funny, Consuelo, when we started our firm, Richard Bernstein Advisors, in, in 2009, 2010, um, the story back then was you had to invest in emerging markets. Nobody wanted to invest in the United States. It was really quite extraordinary to, to see this. And, and of course, we went through a decade where the United States outperformed emerging right. markets. Right. Now people are saying, where would you invest other than the United States, right? They're, they're very uh, geographically myopic. And so our point is, look, when you look outside the United States, you find fundamentals are improving. The valuations are much cheaper and nobody cares. Here's, well, that to us, that says there's opportunities and there's a chance to find you know, companies that are fundamentals are doing well at, a, at much cheaper valuations than what you have to pay here in the United States. And there are ETFs that you can find that invest in Absolutely. those as well. Absolutely. There's plenty. There's plenty that can get you outside the United States. Final question. Uh, one investment for a long-term diversified portfolio, and let's take advantage of one that is going to participate in this uh, recovery. 
my favorite if, if, of all time, which has got to be the most out of favor thing you could ever imagine. But over long periods of time, it outperforms. And during cyclical upturns, it does really well, is small cap value. I think if there's one thing that your viewers probably have nothing in their portfolio of, it could be small cap value. But over long periods of time, small cap value has outperformed virtually everything. And in a cyclical upturn, it does very well. Great. Rich Bernstein, lovely to have you on Wealth Track. Thanks so much for joining us this week. Thanks, Consuela. Great to be with you. At the close of every Wealth Track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point picks up on one of Rich Bernstein's recommendations. It is to make sure you own some small cap value stocks. Until recently, the small cap value sector has lagged large cap growth stocks for over a decade. As a result, many small cap value companies are truly undervalued by every traditional measure. How to participate? Well, Bernstein's team has used the iShares Russell 2000 value ETF in its multi-asset ETF portfolios for its small cap value participation. Morningstar's one gold rated ETF in the category is the Vanguard small cap value ETF. And it also gives a gold analyst rating to its mutual fund equivalent, the Vanguard Small Cap Value Index. And one other, the actively managed Boston Partners Small Cap Value Index. Historically, over multi-decade periods of time, small cap value stocks have outperformed every other equity category. According to Bernstein and others, that record is about to resume. On the next Wealth Track, financial thought leader and former PIMCO chief economist Paul McCulley on why massive government spending is vital to recovery and future growth. In this week's extra feature on WealthTrack.com, Bernstein discusses the lasting effects of the pandemic on his personal and professional life. In the meantime, we hope you will continue to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. We really appreciate the time you spend with us. Have a lovely weekend and make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.